Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As some of you know, I have been soliciting listeners of the show previous guests of the show and anyone else really who wants to say something nice about the show to send in little video clips or audio clips or written testimonials or photographs, whatever it is, something that you want to send to me to express your support and interest in the show. And I got a very nice message that I'd like to read to you now. Here, here it is. Over these past years of making music, I've been subjected to many forms of interaction, just as others have been pushed into the discomfortable burden of having to make talk with me in order to fulfill an assignment. Most often, these are kind of perfunctory and utilitarian, definitely forced. In fact, in conversations in general, we get so accustomed to spoken words being like icebergs, mostly subtext or white noise mixed in with the rare chips of substance. I am a half-full kind of fellow. It's the only way to be when half-emptiness carries with it a soul-death sentence. And so I keep hope alive. Red herrings like Barack Hussein Obama and Vish Khanna in turn keep this drive alive. Because every conversation with Vish is wonderfully and surprisingly one in which most of the substance is above board and above water, maybe fooling us into thinking that optimism has its place. Regardless, it's rewarding, relaxing, fulfilling to engage with Vish, as the exchanges have always been just rife with that rarest rarity, communication. It actually feels like Vish thinks before, during, and after speaking, and that what he thinks about during all of those phases is upliftingly relevant. My name is Will Oldham, and I represent Bonnie Billy, and I approve this message. Well, thank you very much to Will Oldham for this. I don't know if I even agree with all of it, uh, I, let alone some of you are like, what, that guy? No, I, I, I appreciate everyone who listens to this show. And as I say, all of these kind messages that have been coming in. We're hoping to compile a little video thing for you very soon of some of these things. And uh, look for that. In the meantime, if you want to support this show uh, in some way, please do. Tell your friends to listen to it. Tell them to like it on uh, Facebook, the Creative Control of Vishkana page. Tell them to please subscribe to it on iTunes. Write us nice reviews on iTunes. That seems to help get the word out a little bit. Uh, you can also support the show financially with a monthly pledge. We are trying to do this Patreon campaign. I haven't looked at it in a while. You can probably hear me clicking now. I was not prepared to look at it right now. 
But uh, the last I looked, we were just uh, close to three hundred dollars, uh, and our goal has been to try to get to five hundred dollars before the end of this month uh, to keep the show going. And if not, we'll have to uh, think about the future in some way and figure out what we can do. There are T-shirts uh, available for people who want to support uh, the show. Uh, if you pledge more than $10 a month, uh, I will send you a t-shirt and that's the way it's going to go. Yes, here we go. Patreon.com creative control. Uh, we are at $289, uh, and 43 patrons. If you'd like to support the show uh, financially with a monthly pledge, we would uh, love that. And, uh, it would keep the show going beyond, beyond August and, uh, and the future. It'll keep it the whole thing going. So thank you once again for listening. That's where we're at. Thank you, Will Oldham. Thank you to every guest who's been on the show and, and to all of you for listening. And speaking of the show, let's get to the show. Creative Control with Beach Hey, I'm back in Guelph, Ontario, where I live. It's uh, been away a lot lately. I have been on doing kind of working vacation stuff, off from my day job. Uh, and I was at a cottage. I was at a cottage, <laughs> which was nice. There's a lake, and I don't swim, but we went in. I went in the lake with my family, and there was a, I made fires every night, like legit fires. I didn't just set things on fire. I went to the little fire pit and made fires. It was felt good. It felt nice and relaxing. But I, uh, then this week I was away uh, in Toronto doing some really uh, fulfilling, inspiring work for a few days, and uh, now I'm back at home. And that's why there wasn't a, a show on Tuesdays. I like to try to get them out. If there's only one a week, I try to do them on Tuesdays, but it's not always possible. You know what it's like. I Kind of, kind of making this up as I go along now. But I hope you got a chance to check out uh, last week's episodes with uh, Slim Twig and Billy Gould of Faith No More. Uh, I posted those ahead of leaving, and as far as I know, they went out into the world and people heard them. So thank you. And uh, oh, I, I meant to thank uh, Audio Boom. Audio Boom has been really uh, supportive and kind to this show. If you don't know it, go to audioboom.com. They are the hub. Uh, they're kind of an audio podcast news audio news hub and they have picked up the show to distribute it as uh, some of you know and they've been really kind and supportive in, in promoting uh, episodes of the show so thanks again to audio boom and all of you again for listening to the show on this episode while i was in toronto this week i, I went and caught up with gary taxali who's an artist a visual artist whose work i admire uh we he seemed to have some music connections and i wanted to talk to him about that uh, but i i like art i wanted to talk about art because he's really a fascinating guy. His work has appeared in every really every major every major magazine. Like I, I get the New Yorker, and there's Gary Taxali drawings in there, and, and Entertainment Weekly, and all sorts of other magazines. And uh, he's done major ad campaigns. But I don't think a lot of people. I have a print. I happen to have a print. My wife and I bought a print of his maybe ten years ago, and so I stare at one of his uh, uh, illustrations almost every day. And so I'm a fan of his. I don't know that uh, his work is really recognized by other Canadians. He's based in Toronto. And so I went to his uh, his home and his studio, and we, we spoke. And I really enjoyed it. We talked a lot about India. We're both Indians. And we talked a lot about uh, art and Canada and Bernie Sanders. And it was great. I really enjoyed hanging out with him. So... He's a really sweet guy, and he's just one of the most talented people I've ever uh, had the chance to encounter. So I hope you'll listen and enjoy this. This is myself and Gary Taxali. It's good to be home. Wherever 
This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Mr. Holmes, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, Infinitely Polar Bear, and more. And at the E-Bar, Submassive with DMS, Jungle Cat, LED, and Orangagang do DJ sets on August 13th and on August 15th. Check out Guelph Poetry Slam. The Bookshelf is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. trying to tell me about this tea and i said no i want it on the record what's the deal with this tea <laughs> it's uh it's tasty it's a uh, it's tulsi tea i've been drinking it a lot it's cinnamon infused tulsi so tulsi uh is i think it's an indian word but uh it's also known as holy basil and uh it's with the with the yogis drink in india apparently so Apparently, you don't know. Isn't this weird that you're? It's kind of a medicated <laughs> tea. We're just experimenting. What do we get high or something? <laughs> I've never gotten high on the show before. It could make us high. You see, it's possible. It'll it'll make you grounded. Grounded. Yeah. Oh, I guess the yogis. Yeah. No, yogis don't get high. Yeah. What am I talking about? Yeah. They they get grounded and you know they, they and mellow. Now, where did you get this Tulsi tea? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to make me drink this mysterious medicinal tea? Is it going to do something? Does it have some effects? You say it'll ground me. Will it like calm my... Will, like, will it impact my heart rate? Will it do something? I Yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, I mean, I don't think it's going to be anything that's noticeable. It, I, I think it just tastes good, and it's probably like... You, you know, I, I, I everything I know about this... I've already shared, and everything <laughs> that uh, I've thought about this, I've said in this conversation. Okay, so you've had, so, that's what you, but you've been drinking it, and it's had yeah. no, it's had a nice effect on you. I think so. Like, like about a tangible, like you feel like some yeah. kind of physiological change. Yeah. It's there. Okay, and you don't know where it's from. But you, were you not just in India not too long ago? Eight months ago. Eight months ago, and what was the occasion? What brought you to India? So I was invited there to teach for two weeks, 
at the National Institute of Design. It's a school that is in um, Ahmedabad, but they also have a campus in Bangalore. Mm -hmm. And so the school I teach at uh, is friends with that school. So my school sent me there because every year... Like on an exchange kind of thing? or Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's called an open elective. So uh, it's kind of a proposal thing. So uh, people are invited um, in the university to do proposal, and and they liked my idea for a workshop, and and so I went. And what school do you teach at? The school I teach at is OCAD University. Right, you in Toronto. You teach in Toronto, at OCAD. Yes. Okay, so you go there, and what did you? What? Did, how did you find the experience? Because you you're from India originally. You were born there, right? I was born. Yeah, and so I thought. It would be this experience of going back to a place where I could just settle in and relax and be comfortable uh, because um, in, in regards to like speaking the language or the little I know of the language. But in that part of India, they don't speak Hindi. They speak something else and <laughs> nobody can understand my Hindi. Uh, what would they speak? Urdu and Hindi are fairly similar, right? Yeah, the, what they speak yeah, I think it's called Karnataka. Oh, okay. Is is what it's called. Uh, I'm not pr- probably likely pronouncing it correctly, but also like the characters are different um, in the, in the typography. Everything. Do, do you is, read and write Hindi as well? No, hell no. No, okay, no. yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> Did you have to go to my? I I don't know if this existed anywhere else, but when I was growing up, I was I had to go briefly to Hindi school. My mom and some of the other aunties. Actually, it was weirdly at my school. Like, I went to Avenue Road Public School in Cambridge. And on Saturday mornings, all the Indian kids would come and they would try to teach us, you know, Kakabuther and, and like, mm-hmm. there was, like, an alphabet, all this stuff. And I didn't do well. I don't, I could never, actually, I, I haven't seen Indian typography in so long. It's a little mystifying to me. You know, it's a combination of uh, a, it being, you know, not an easy language and uh, with coupled with the fact that when you're young, it feels like a chore. I know I, I went through the exact same thing. My parents did it for me, and I yeah. hated it. And also, it's just not something you appreciate until later in life. You know, when you're yeah. a kid, it's just it's all it's it's. Let's face it, it's not cool. I, I thought it was lame. And 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 you. So you were born in India. Uh, how long did you live there after you were born? Do you remember when you left? I, well, I was a, I was a baby. So you were a baby when they when they left. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can't. You were mostly. You were raised in Toronto. A, a raised in Toronto, and then, uh, uh, you know, b- being raised in Toronto uh, in in the Indian community, uh, you, you had a really great impact oh. on my on my artistic uh, base and influence, and I didn't realize it at the time, growing up, but so much of what I do now, some of the things I think about. Are, are you know do stem from like growing up in in an Indian community how so well for example uh, we would go to uh, Gerard Street every weekend and see the movies and the theaters there and run into like family and friends and my, my world my like the the creative in influence I got you know was from the films so I really like was uh, drawn to the bad guys. You got to go to see Indian films in like a theater, like in a cinema. Absolutely! Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah, because I, mm-hmm. I had the same experience as you, where I, I, well, I went to India for the first time in 1989, first and only time. 
I got to go in 1989 and I was turning 12 or 13, I think. And I was really rejecting my parents and the culture. And I hated those trips to Girard Street. They would take me to Girard Street. So to go to India, I now describe it like when I got to India, I was like, this is like Girard Street on steroids. <laughs> it's, it's just true. like an amplified Girard Street. Yeah. I'm like, and I can't escape. Like I knew that a couple blocks down from Girard Street, I might feel okay. But I had that initial sensation. I'm like, this is just like Girard Street, but crazier. <laughs> so, so when was the so you were you left as a baby and you just went eight months ago? Is that the first time you'd been back? No, I've been back a few times, probably okay. like three times before that, before this uh, trip. Uh, but th- uh, again, like this is the first time I saw part of India that I didn't know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I I felt like a foreigner. Where where were you actually born, or where did you where would you normally go if you went to India? I was born in a city called Chandigarh, which is in the state of Punjab, right. uh, which means city of the moon. Uh, it's significant to architects because it was designed by Le Corbusier, the French architect who mapped the city out in the 50s huh. after um, India and Pakistan separated. So all these Hindus uh, were forced to leave Pakistan and they needed to put them someplace. So they put them in Punjab and they just created the city. So it's awesome in the, in the sense that you have a relatively new city for a country like India. Right. And the second thing that's awesome is that you have this group of Hindus who were like, you know, transplanted in this place in the state of Punjab. So my family and all the other Hindus there grew up speaking Punjabi right. and assimilating the Punjabi culture. So it's really kind of a funny little um, mix of, of, of those worlds kind of, kind of coming together. So I grew up like, you know, being comfortable with the Punjabi language and just thinking that's how it goes. But, but then you discover there's this whole other, <laughs> there's a whole other language, language. <laughs> many languages and many dialects. Yeah. You, you, and I didn't mean to cut you off. You were saying that by going to Girard street with your family and seeing these films that had a huge impact on your art. Can you expand upon where you were going with that? Cause I'm trying to, I can kind of see it in some of the textures and colors. I'm familiar with your art. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more? Indian films, especially uh, from you know uh, several decades ago, really had uh, everything in them. There was like the the action, the yep. romance, like all everything was just for everybody. So. Um, I love the fighting. I love like all the action scenes. Dishu, dishu. Exactly. Dishu, dishu. That's the sound we used to make when we were, yeah. And oh man, (laughs) the Indian bad guys, forget about it. The bad guy in Shole had such an impact on me that later on in life, I started working on a series of like fictional Indian bad guys that I often stick in my exhibitions. And so that stuff really... uh, you know, uh, it fascinated me, but also just just the notion of kind of having like the sort of escapism secret and knowing something about a world that the rest of my friends didn't know existed yeah. because it was an Indian thing. So I'd go to school the next day, back to kind of normal. I'm like, I just saw the craziest film. Like, what, what, Star Wars? Like, no, 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 man. <laughs> and I saw this Meet the Butchin movie where right. like, you know, there's like a towering inferno meets this, meets that. And it was like indescribable, you know. And and so that kind of perspective, I think, uh, gave me this kind of uh, outside-in looking framework 
which really helped me kind of um, form a form a base and form a point of view to help develop my work. You're speaking from the perspective of a, a wiser version of yourself. Exactly. I yeah. think that uh, when you're growing up, I, as I mentioned, I, you know, I don't know if I was just stubborn. Uh, probably, I, I was probably, probably still am stubborn, know-it-all kind of fellow. And so your parents are telling you stuff and they're teaching you stuff and they're trying to instill their values within you. And you're just, I myself took some of it, but rejected a lot of it. And so I don't know, I think, I don't know that I palpably felt ashamed, um, but I think I didn't make a big deal about my culture. Uh, in fact, I probably tried to hide it a little bit growing up. You know, I was mostly interested in playing hockey and yeah. road hockey and all that stuff. Did you, do you remember when, because you're talking about talking to your friends about, by the way, have you ever seen uh, Umar Akbar and Anthony? Oh, Yeah. That that movie yeah. had a huge impact on me. So we're talking about that was Amit Bachchan, that was Rishi Kapoor, was it? Um, uh, the third guy was. Um, uh, I don't remember. It's from my childhood. It wasn't Raj- Rajesh. No, Rajesh Khanna. Was it? No, probably not. You know what? I know who it was. He. I think. Um, it's going to come to me. Anand. <laughs> oh they, no 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 not not Dave Anand. It was. Uh, I'm so. I, I can picture the guy. Okay, oh you'll get it. You're I'll get, get it. it. I'll totally get it. Yeah. I am so far removed from that. Yeah. Like talking to you now, it's coming back. I remember the Amur Akbar and Anthony. It was like a, I remember the song. Do you remember that song? I remember it so well. But what I also remember about it, which I thought was fascinating, was that here we are watching a movie that is taking three characters. One's a a Christian guy. One's a Muslim guy. And one's a Hindu guy. Yeah. And they're. They're exploring, I would say, like a pretty contemporary theme that wasn't uh, probably popular at the time. Yeah, which I thought was pretty awesome. No, the, some of those yeah. movies, like we're, I kind of make light of them with the with the fighting and because every Indian movie was weirdly a musical, uh, and that took a little bit of processing. I right. think as a kid, where like every film had a dance song sequence, yeah. and every film had these epic fights, and everyone seemed to have a mustache. And <laughs> there were just all these tropes, <laughs> and, and they didn't really... And then, you know, at some point, I don't know what happened. I don't know if you remember this, but they, somebody decided to serialize and make soap operas out of the holy books. There was Ma Bharath. That's right. And there was uh, Ramayan. That's right, yes. And so my, I don't know what happened, or I feel like it happened in the late 80s, because all of a sudden, it was just on all the time. My right. parents only would really be watching yeah. that. And it's basically the story, these these biblical yeah. stories. Sorry, they're not biblical, but you know what I mean. They're the Vedic holy, scripture, yeah. Yeah, that's right. They're yeah. Vedic, so they're the, these kinds of stories. So I went from seeing these relatively trivial films to that being on all the time. And that wasn't good. I think that it seemed to be more orthodoxy, more rule, religion now. Right. You're, you're not just the Indian culture that I'm trying to... You, it's weird. You grow up in a kind of culture shock when you're first generation, right? Cause it's you're, true. Because you're in the your high school and your grade school and you're trying to, I wasn't even trying to assimilate. It, it was just normal to me. Yeah. Going to India was weirder. I was an outsider in India. Did you find that? Oh yeah. And that's the thing that really confused me. And like you too, like, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I didn't think the stuff that I secretly liked, um, was cool to talk about. Right. You know, I mean the food, like, Oh my God. Like I used to think like, <laughs> uh, do, do people not realize that, 
a samosa in a movie theater is better than popcorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I would never say that to my friends. No, no. In fact, I used to play road hockey right after dinner. And I think I would frequently be like, why am I open all the time? And I think it's just like, I probably smelled, in retrospect, because I would go to university, I'd go home from university on the weekends, and when I'd come back to wherever I was living, my roommates would be like, man, you really smell like Indian food. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's probably in my clothes, it's probably everywhere, it's probably always been, I didn't know it. Yeah. So, <laughs> it is weird, it is sort of strange, it's a weird alien uh, experience that you're not really aware of until, for me, I don't know about you, but when I did when did you come out of your shell? This was my original question. For me, it was when I got to university. When, when do you remember when you started to realize, oh, there's actually cachet in my Indianness? I would say uh, I came out of my shell definitely in art school because hmm. um, anybody would in that you're in uh, a place of other like-minded freaks, and everybody's got like. Uh, their own craziness to bring, you know, to the discussion yeah, and, and into the creative process and in group critiques. So at the same time, you know, in, in one sense, it, it, it kind of was a bit disappointing because what I thought was a unique perspective was just run of the mill. Oh, you just happen to be Indian? Well, I'm this, I'm that. I'm like, whoa, okay, everybody else is pretty, like, yeah. you know, interesting with their stories. But at the same time, I was the only Indian I was the only Indian in the school. It's a pretty mm. small school uh, to begin with. And even still to this day, like there's not very many Indians um, in the arts uh, as one would think would be considering we come from a country that is so rich historically in art and design. It is something that I've heard people say. There's not many Indians in the arts. There's not many Indians in the NBA. We don't know why. <laughs> why? We should be great. We're, we should be good at basketball. I'm tall. There's a, there's a Punjabi guy, right? Is there's there? A, I didn't seat, know that. Yeah, there's a Sikh guy that is like uh, in the NBA, I believe. Huh. I didn't know LeBron James was Sikh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't know of, of this Punjabi player. That's great. Um, yeah, so you, you felt, even though everyone had their story, you still felt unique. Yeah, and at the time, too, I, I, I wasn't even... I wasn't embarrassed at that point about being uh, Indian. Um, I just never really like spoke about it. I was uh, also artistically interested in other things like what was happening in Poland with Polish poster artists. Oh. So for a few years, I was really looking at that stuff. It probably wasn't until I graduated uh, in, in, and left art school and moved to New York and, and met people that were really coming from um, a place of bringing like their... Uh, family and cultural backgrounds into their work that I realized, you know, I, I should kind of uh, take the things that I really truly love that are mine and, and have fun with them. Were you ever self-conscious of being too purposeful about that cultural background? You get to a point where as you're starting to make whatever you make in life, if it's art or any kind of creative endeavor, some external force will be like, you know, you're Indian that would be an interesting perspective for us to hear uh, or hear from. You know, you're an Indian who likes indie rock. That's unusual. The same way that you're saying, you know, you were pretty much the only Indian in... I was like the only Indian kid I saw at Sonic Youth shows growing up or, right. or punk shows or Fugazi shows, for, for that matter. And so I didn't think about it at all because I can't... I just... I don't know if I was just oblivious, but I never really looked at my skin 
myself. Yeah. I just sort of sat in a room with a bunch of whoever was around, whatever city I'm in, you know, that's the people, that's the region. So it's, that's a strange sensation. I, I would never, uh, I would never, uh, you know, think that anybody would hope anyways, that would look at my work or knows the body of my work would think I'm a guy that's trying to say, Hey, I come from this like, gown, like some like remote, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, place in India and I'm, and I'm uh, drawing and painting this stuff to, you know, <laughs> I think people know pretty clearly that my influences are from uh depression era, American graphics yeah. and, and infused with that um, are some contemporary themes that do deal with some Indian stuff. So it's almost like a little bit exactly who I am, right? My perspective where I grew up and the things I enjoy and listen to and like, um, are exactly what I put in my work. Uh-huh. So it is from my perspective. So it's a, it's kind of like sort of a glaze and a smattering, but it's, it's definitely something that I don't think anybody who grew up in India would be interested in exploring visually. Yeah, like they're not going to pick up on obvious yeah. tropes that relate to Indian culture. Exactly. But if someone like me, who knows your background a little bit now, were to read into it, we probably could have a field day of just right. being like, "Oh, that's a that looks like a sari or whatever, like yeah. something stupid." You're you grew up as you say when you went to art school, you noticed there was some you were a bit of an anomaly. What was your upbringing like in terms of supporting? you're venturing into the realm of arts um, because so many Indians that I talk to of my vintage, I think you and I are around the same age. I don't know. You might be a little bit older than me, I think. Yeah. um, You know, uh, I'm super lucky. I'm lucky that I had uh, an absolutely amazing mother who uh, was supportive of everything I did. As a small child, I, I would show her drawings and I would make her laugh. All the time I'd make her laugh. And, and at school, I'd get like in trouble from the teachers from being silly for drawing silly things. I'm like, wait a second, home, this is encouraged. And these other adults are telling me it's a bad thing. So I'm like, I'll just listen to my mom, right? So nice. I, luckily, I, I was getting the thumbs up from her, which I attribute to me becoming an artist. So I eventually wrote a, a kid's book called This is Silly and I dedicated it to my That's mom. That's right, yeah. But my dad was my art teacher. My dad was the guy who knew how to draw and paint and I would sit with him and I actually remember there was a certain point where he stopped drawing things for me because I would ask him, can you draw a cheetah? Can you draw a cowboy? And he would do this. And then one day he said, no, you do it. And then he sort of showed me, um, you know, how to observe, how to like uh, mix paint, how to like work a line. And and so I, w- I would watch him do this. He didn't do it uh for a living or anything. He was just a hobby artist. And and so he was really excited about me liking to draw and paint because he thought, oh, you know, my, my son has taken this kind of uh, passion that I have. And so he uh, would actively enroll me in community oh, wow. center, like classes. Um, and my sister, my sister was just like, you know, this is like cool. This is great. And, you know, she, uh, it, it's almost as if I had no idea that Indian families uh, weren't supposed to be supportive of, of their children who <laughs> had, wanted to be artists. Uh, your other Indian friends, did they convey to you a sense of disapproval from their parents when they explored artistic things? Because there's, there's a sense, I think, among the, the Indian kids that I grew up, and certainly my experience was that if it wasn't practical, 
if it wasn't viable, if it wasn't going to make you financially secure, not even financially secure, if you weren't going to make more money than everybody else, it was kind of frowned upon. Uh, Absolutely. And and there was a, a, a certain point where it became like uh, a serious career path for me where I wanted to go to art school. And, you know, I sat down with my dad and he said, you know, this is what you love to do because what you should do in life is the thing that you love to do, but you have to work hard at it. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, I'm like, that's, that's easy. I love this stuff. So the working hard part is already taken care of. So the rest will fall into place. And so that support kind of gave me the confidence. Too many people worry about the vocational prospects of, of what life will bring them as opposed to uh, worrying about just being happy. And luckily, uh, I didn't have this kind of insight. I don't think my parents were rolling the dice. I think they were concerned the entire time. Mm. But I also told them, I said, well, I'm going to study illustration. And illustration you know, is working with advertising agencies and design mm-hmm, firms. Mm-hmm. So it's a bona fide business in commercial art. And so that kind of, uh, it, it wasn't something that, I chose to do because I didn't want to, but it was, it was something that I think made them feel really happy. And, and my sister would talk to my mom and dad about that and said, Oh, you know, this is really great. You know, he's doing this and doing that. And so I, I did this thing and then my parents would have dinner parties and you know, those Indian dinner parties, you know, all the kids are there. And so I, I would be, um, downstairs serving the Johnny Walker and the soda and like, <laughs> all the Indian yeah. dads like, right? they, they like the Johnny Walker. It's weird. And then they would say things to me like, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, you know, I'm going to art school. Art school? Why not university? You know, right. get a real education, right? And so uh, I would tell my dad this and I'm like, dad, these guys are like cool people at all, right? And even like their kids would sometimes be like, you know, Gary, you know, you are a smart guy. Why don't you go to ver- university and just do this art thing on the side? Right. And it just kind of fueled my anger a little bit. Right. I thought, this is very uncool. And that's what prompted you to really take it on. For the passion, like almost at that point, because I had the same thing, except I came, it was a place of, uh, I didn't get a lot of support from my family, uh, my parents, in terms of the things I wanted. They eventually kind of resigned themselves to like, I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm not going to be a lawyer. But, so part of my wanting to succeed was somewhat spiteful. (laughs) Part of it was wanting to prove that this was something uh, that could be done. And for a while there, I felt like I'd proven that point. I've been feeling more adrift of late. Um, but for a while there when I was working for, and I still work for some really top media companies, but there is that sense of institutional acceptance leads to approval from your parents. Exactly. And you, I don't know if you had that experience because you, you're one of your first jobs you were telling me before we started rolling was for Penthouse. Penthouse magazine. I mean, you know, this was, uh, this was in the United States. I was working uh, for Canadian publications before that. But even before I worked for that magazine, um, it's a lot of men's magazines that, you know, hire illustration. I did a uh, a billboard for Levi's. So there was like, uh, and, and it was actually at the corner of Young and Bloor. It was like a big oh. campaign. Uh, but so much of that stuff was... Uh, this really nice thing for my parents to see that, you know, this guy is like, you know, getting assignment work and it was coming from all kinds of different places, the financial times, you know, this publication, that design firm, this company, even Sony was hiring me too to do record uh, cover stuff. So it was just kind of part and parcel of everything. 
Is that freelance? So this is all you're a freelancer, basically, right? Yeah. You're an artist for hire. Yeah. And you must have, there's some infrastructure now yeah. for I would you. never use the words for hire because... Oh, sorry. Um, no, the reason why is because I think there's a dis- distinct difference uh, between hiring somebody um, and working in uh, collaboration with them. So I work collaboratively oh, oh, I see, I see. with companies. And also, uh, there's also uh, some issues in the world of... Um, uh, copyright and so forth where there's a terminology called work for hire which means they own the copyright oh. so i never transfer my copyright oh you you retain the copyright every single time really always and forever yeah has that proven useful oh uh, yeah it's it's career suicide to do otherwise because if you give away your copyright uh you're essentially giving somebody the right to own your work and they can turn around and sue you for uh, copying yourself. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a horrible thing. Hmm. Um, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's uh, um, unfortunately something that a lot of artists aren't aware of. But, um, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I tell other artists all the time that the money is not as important as the preservation of your copyright and retaining it. Yeah. I get the impression from, from what I know of you, you have a rebellious streak. You have an independent streak. I think subversive, <laughs> subversive, subversive culture is interesting and important to you. Were you ever feeling compromised by having to work with companies like, well, Penthouse, like, like Levi's, like some of these bigger multinational corporations or, or entities that are doing, you know, I, I'm not going to degrade Penthouse right now or disparage them in any way, but uh, I meant to say disparage, and I curiously used the word degrade because I was <laughs> thinking of women and what Penthouse might do to women. Did you ever feel conflicts when you're working with bigger companies? No, because I'll just say no. Like, uh, you know, Philip Morris called me, uh, and there are there is a line. There's certain hmm. things that I just won't do, um, but... It just doesn't really seem to happen uh, too much. Oh, okay. uh, it, I have to really like think about it. Other than those guys, uh, publications that you know are—I mean, I, I work for all kinds of you know uh, publications and in, in, in companies and corporations. It's it's actually you know I read magazines uh, yeah. a lot and I subscribe to some of them, and uh, so they come to my house and invariably when I pick up my new New Yorker. There's a Gary Taxelli uh, cover image, or you're inside. There's an image inside, you made yeah. in, inside the magazine. Have you done a cover? You've done it some, Gary. You've done some uh, New Yorker covers, right? I've not. They've, they've asked me to. Oh, okay. And uh, so I, you know, it was sent a list of things that they wanted. Oh. And, you know, I, uh, they're they're really wonderful people. I it, it it just kind of like never really seemed to happen because I was. Uh, You've really, definitely been in it. I've seen you in. Oh it. yeah, I, I work for them a lot. Yeah, yeah, and and then Entertainment Weekly. Work with them a lot. <laughs> right, right, Entertainment Weekly. I think I've seen you in. Uh, probably Rolling Stone. I think maybe. I, I yeah, work for all those publications. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're working for all these bigger companies, yeah. and and you're retaining the copyright. But I mean. I don't even know where I was going with this other than <laughs> I, I know that your work is, is it's, it's out there. Like it's really out there. You've achieved a certain amount of success and people are coming to you for it. Is that what you're saying generally? Yeah. Yeah. And do you have like an agent? Do you have like an infrastructure? I just don't know how this works. I, I, I mean, my, my work has been out there for a little while. So, so people who are in the business of looking at uh, art and illustration will know where to find me. Um, my sister is my agent. My sister and I work mm-hmm. together, and 
but you know, honestly, Vish, I don't really do that much illustration anymore. I haven't done a lot of illustration in the last few years. Um, mostly what I do is other stuff. Uh, it just kind of veered that way. Um, it wasn't something that I planned. I just started doing more and more um, uh, exhibitions and galleries and other kinds of projects like, um, you know, uh, commissions with companies that were more about aligning themselves with me as a brand versus me providing content in a publication or in a, in a usage that where I'm just kind of like um, an L, like a, a link in the chain, so to speak. Okay. So, so when things like that happen, like um, I did an ad for uh, Converse and they said, just give us a picture. We'll pay you no matter what. Just don't draw shoes. Just give us a piece of art. And so the, the ad came out and the text of the ad was Gary Tixali is an original, just like our shoes oh. and that kind of thing. So the, what they're, they're doing is they're branding their product, um, you know, in alignment with content, with the way contemporary artists are doing things. And I think a lot more of that kind of um, usage of what people would perceive as illustration is now just turning into like fine art commission. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you, did you feel weird that your name, like your actual, not just your art, but you as a person was identified with a, a shoe company? Not at all. I thought it was cool because I liked the shoes. <laughs> like on, <laughs> so, so, whether they Chuck Taylors or something? Uh, yeah, and they sent me some. And they sent did me you the, actually have a Chuck Taylor shoe? Yeah, no, they sent me the... Oh, man. Yeah. So like your art is on a Chuck Taylor no, shoe? No, 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 not oh, like that. Oh, oh okay. So, so it wasn't... Uh, <laughs> they actually did have that campaign, but this was... Uh, um, these are print ads um, in publications like Vice, as well as things like um, on the Paris Metro... In, in, in places like that. So, you know, they wanted to kind of just have like, um, I guess a consideration for the demographic that right. would buy that product and, and put it in that sort of forms of, Hey, look at this. We're, we got cool artists on our side. Yeah. 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 It gives them cachet. Exactly. Right. Now you, as far as I know, you are a music fan as well, right? Like music was important to you. A uh, music is, uh, is, uh, I would say I'm more than a fan. I would I would I would describe it as fuel. I can't draw and paint without it. I um, so much of what I do um, in a particular type of music for years now, like frames the pictures I make, and a lot of that music is is from a long time ago. Is uh, from like the 20s and 30s, like Mississippi Delta stuff. Oh, 
and in and, and that is the stuff that um I can't listen to that music without coming up with ideas and uh, entire exhibitions were just made like listening to just stuff from that time and um there's something about that music I guess but also um, the kinds of iconography and graphics I'm interested in that interested in are from that time so it's all kind of like this sort of visual balance uh you know the the, the musical balance the musical and the visual are sort of balanced you know are you are there particular artists do you collect records are there particular things that you have to listen to or that you would deem essential to your collection or your yeah. work even i mean you know <laughs> i mean definitely like there's there's some stuff that just gives me like shivers you know and i and i listen to like you know, Blind Willie Johnson, Blind w- Willie McTell, and Fred McDowell, and, you know, people that just kind of... Um, Charlie Patton? Ch- ch- you know, I don't know much Charlie Patton. <laughs> okay, sorry. No, I didn't mean to interject. <laughs> I would say that uh, th- I th- there's something also about just uh, um, the impoverished, um, you know, destitute view of of the world... And being treated kind of badly, what was going on in America at the time, you know, just gives me like the sense of like, uh, I don't know, perspective about where I am now. And I just look at that stuff and it just makes me sad and inspired. What about the fact that so many of those circumstances uh, and, you know, what people are going through then, or what people went through then, it's still occurring today. I mean, sure we're, we're going through, I can't, I don't know, in my lifetime, I can't think of a greater period of racial unrest, of civil unrest than right now. Does that stuff impact you as an artist? It does. It, it, uh, it, it's worrisome. Uh, what's worrisome is that uh, the packaging is slicker and it looks good, but what's inside, like exactly what you just said, it has not gone away, and in many cases, it's worse because it's surfaced. And it's so, more, it seems more insidious. It has surfaced, yeah. but it's also more. It's happening more insidiously, and more, more. It's just part of the infrastructure yeah. uh, of our lives now, and we don't even know it. You know, it's happening via cuts to social programs and 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 welfare, and it's 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 infuriating, and seemingly unstoppable. I mean, it's at a point where, for all our for me anyway, for all the joking about hokiness, like all, all, all kind of making fun of people who invoke hope, I'm getting close to the point where I'm like, it was, that was to me the Daily Show. Like when Jon Stewart, who just left the Daily Show, that to me was, it was getting to the point where I couldn't even laugh at the show anymore. Right. Uh, like it was just getting, I was like, no, it's too much. Like I can't, there was a point where you could make fun of these idiots and you could, mm-hmm. but they have too much power. Like on the one right. hand, they're they're gonna win. We can make fun of everything all we want. I thought you were gonna mention um, Wyatt Cenac. Wyatt Cenac it, as well. It, yeah, he came to uh, um, my uh, last solo exhibition. I met him because he um, is friends. He's a fr- friend of a friend, and so he follows me on uh, Instagram. And, oh, nice! And um, re- lovely man, but. I read what he had to say, his account of that. I didn't know it at the time or anything. You know, I don't think anybody did. Well, just to, for background, so because people are listening. So basically, sure. Wyatt Cenac came out. Uh, he was on the WTF with Mark Maron, and he was talking about an incident with Jon Stewart where uh, Wyatt was critical of Jon Stewart's uh, 
Herman Cain impression. Right. And suggested that it was it had racial undertones. You know, he was doing basically a minstrelsy. Right. And Stewart allegedly exploded and said, you know, fuck you, fuck off, right. get out of here. Like, was very angry at him. And what did you take away from that story? Because all of us at the time this came out, we were kind of celebrating and commemorating the end of Stewart's run on the show. And then, I don't mean, no pun intended, there was this black cloud of Wyatt Cenac saying, you know, you were lying. I mean, as much as everyone was, there were lots of stories about how objective was this guy. And, and, you know, this this guy was just to the left what Fox News was for the right. But then Wyatt came through with this very personal, personality-driven thing. And I think some of us were like, dude, like, you know, this guy did a really great show. There's not a single one of us that doesn't judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. And I think that's what happened there. Uh, I think it, uh, John Stewart was definitely uh, uh, taken aback and likely hurt by that accusation because he would never ever dare uh, come from a perspective where he was making fun of a people. Yeah. But that line was crossed. And I think for him, I think he was genuinely like offended and, and, and wanting to know like there's, this is absolutely out of line because there's no way you do you know who I am. And he's probably hurt um, from that perspective. But at the same time, at the same time, it was very important for Wyatt to mention because we need to be reminded in life that there is a line yeah. and there's certain things that you can say and do. And that doesn't give you the right to kind of say, I'm in on something and I get it and I can do this thing. Because Wyatt's perspective saying, you know what? It's a little bit like uh, David Chappelle saying, uh, that white person is not laughing right or a little bit too long at this joke. Yeah, that's right. And the whole thing becomes flipped around. And I think that's what happened. I think that, yeah. I mean, I could go on about how Stuart would, often when he does his, his, they do the kind of the video clip of someone speaking, whoever it is. Right. And Stuart will kind of, they'll throw back to Stuart and he'll do an impression of that person, right? Yeah. And it's often, you know, he's very famous for his Mitch McConnell and George W. Bush, and they're just little impressions, right? So how do you, this becomes this weird, and I want to get into this a little bit because we're, we're treading on a hot button thing that's come back, uh, I think maybe to haunt us, which is political correctness. Right. Uh, and I'm curious about your perspective on it as an artist uh, and whether you've encountered resistance to your work because of it. But anyway, here's a guy who makes his living as a comedian and satirizing people and in some cases doing silly impressions of them. So you go to a Herman Cain clip the way you would a Mitch McConnell clip or a Lindsey Graham clip and you come back from it and you want to kind of drop a punchline in their voice. Is it really like then you get into this gray area of like when it's a black person, should a white Jewish guy be attempting an impression of this guy? The same way he does everybody else who's fair game? I don't know. I mean, everything is anecdotal, right? Like, yeah. it, it, again, it, it, you know, I'm not the judge and jury. I can't, like, point fingers and say who's right and who's wrong. All I know is that I never thought about anything John Stewart ever said or did as being offensive. But I can also say that when I read uh, or heard why Wyatt thought what he did was, you know, um, well, you know, it's politically incorrect. Or you know, offensive. I, to, th- to be honest, I distinctly because I watch that show regularly, yeah. and the first time he did a Herman Cain or Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson impression, 
I, you know, maybe it's just the, the liberal bones in my body. But I remember being like, I mean, right, like a little bit, yeah, like it was a little uncomfortable. And I think why it was articulating that at a point where, right. like this guy, Kane, there's so much to make fun of. There's so much to highlight in terms of problematic stuff. Everything he's saying is ridiculous. Right. The impression isn't necessary. Maybe, you know, that's getting into a territory that, in this ca- case, yeah. you might want to take a step back and look at it. Anyway, this is not for us to say. It's not, you know, and I know exactly what you mean. I always did kind of take it in, like his entire agenda is like, you know, a little bit like, look how ridiculous the right is. Yes. And, and, and this is their perspective. And let's look at them and be like, are you guys out to lunch? Or let's all be on the same side. So I always looked at the bigger picture, but you are absolutely right. And I think why it was, uh, I don't know. I mean, do you do you find the political correctness infiltrates your work? Have you been in situations where people are like, I don't think that you trade. From what I've seen, you're not trading in controversy in your work necessarily. However, things particularly in the realm of art do get misinterpreted, right? They they sure do. I I deal with more like sort of personal struggles and struggles and human emotions rather than the bigger picture about the way uh, a community acts. So that's um, why I never um, deal with things that where, where people go, oh, this is crossing a line um, yet. <laughs> Who knows what will happen in the future? Um, I mean, you know, again, on one hand, uh, I like, you know, I guess most people, I hate political correctness, but I also hate political ignorance, right? And it, like we're talking about, there's that line, and I guess you kind of know it when you see it. I think the the I was always mystified why left leaning people might reject political correctness. Right. Um, this idea of thinking more, from my perspective, the positive aspect of political correctness is actually thinking about how you interact with people and and what you say. Right. And your actions and how every action has a reaction. Right. And I think that aspect of it appealed to me of like, yeah, you know, I mean, we have to, you need to, for me, it was really fundamentally about respecting other people. But then it got kind of twisted into, oh, political correctness is dogma. Political correctness is is an infringement upon free speech and thought. And right now, I had a conversation with Scott Thompson, the kids in the hall on this show a few months back, and he went on a, a, a tear about how com- comedy was being uh, destroyed. Modern comedy is being destroyed by political correctness. You can't be uh, a straight white male and s- say anything without someone putting an out-of-context YouTube clip online. But it should be that way. We should be... We, a comedian should be upset by it, and they should continue to be politically correct and be aware of political incorrectness. The reason why is without it, we'd be a mess. We wouldn't evolve as a species... And with it, we wouldn't evolve. So we need to have that ebb and flow as we move forward. So these kinds of uh, things need to happen. Somebody could disdain it, and they need to disdain it, but you also have to treasure the fact that it's there. But now the biggest... So uh, when I spoke with Scott, who I think is a liberal fellow, it really resonated with me. But now, as you and I are speaking, who is the one attacking political correctness the most? Donald Trump. Right. So you've got the right. So political correctness is this weird football where the left people that I've spoken to on the left are like, dude, like this is killing our right to think 
and speak freely, whereas people on the right are saying the same thing. So, and I don't know if it's a deliberate misinterpretation of what political correctness is, um, but I just, it's, it's a very strange time to make art, to be creative. There always seems to be someone who will misconstrue, either deliberately yep. misconstrue or misinterpret or just find an interpretation in your work that you had no intent to do. I, I don't know if you've ever been embroiled in any kind of controversy that way, but it's possible. It's possible. And, and, and it happens in, you know, it happened over the weekend um, in, uh, in Seattle with, with the uh, protesters. These protesters went and yeah. interrupted Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And now it's out that the, some of the protesters are Sarah Palin supporters and Republicans. And the Black Lives and Matter movement. And they've co-opted are, like, right. the Black Lives Matter movement. And, 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 you know, some people are saying they, you know, they were plants, they were this, they were that. Uh, but I don't know what's going on. I still haven't <laughs> read enough about it. I'm pretty sure I am more willing to believe they were plants by a right-leaning or even the Democratic Party. This Sanders guy, uh, who I've followed for years, like I kind of know of him, yeah. is is a revolutionary right now. Yeah. He's drawing these huge yeah. crowds to a very progressive, reasonable message, and he's being ignored by most of the media. That's right. And now, yeah. I don't know what this was. Like It's only drawn more attention to him, that this Black Lives, supposedly under the guise of Black Lives Matter. I say under the guise because that's what I believe. See, Anyway, I, we're, we're, we're all over the place here. We're all over the place. <laughs> he's, he's great. I think he's going to do fine. I think it's a bit unfortunate that it was, it was a step back for what, their movement is trying to accomplish, which is amazing. And that and that's the part that was... Uh, but the, the genius of it, if this woman, say... The, the, the story is that one of the primary protesters, the a woman, is a Republican, stayed Republican, like a staunch, rather, staunch, oh staunch Republican. Sarah, voted for Sarah Palin. It, it, and so it's, it proved... If, if, if this is true, then it was a double-edged move, <laughs> yeah. right? Because yeah. she she went in and she interrupted a democratic, essentially you know a left leaning thing, and potentially also uh, kind of ruined or, or damaged the reputation of Black Lives Matter. Right. So it was both. So I don't know what to think about. I this. don't know what to think either. <laughs> I just, so I'm I, sorry. This just went crazy. And I still I, need to read some more articles. But I know what crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's a it's a natural conversation. Were you you mentioned the blues? You mentioned Miss, uh, the Mississippi Delta music of the 20s and 30s. Yeah. What about punk? Oh yeah, I mean, and that is just you know, I think a a byproduct of what happened later. I think all those guys listen to that stuff, uh, you know, the punk rock people. Oh yeah, the would punk listen rock to the. Blues, oh absolutely, yeah. you know, and um, and I talked to a, a, you know some of my really close friends, like Holly Golightly, almost every day, and you know she like sends me like links and YouTube's, you know, really obscure stuff all the time, and it's like. A lot, of it, a lot of it is from that era. Yeah. Um, sit down with Sylvain, Sylvain from the New York Dolls. He knows more about that music than anybody ever met either, other than Holly. So a lot of these folks who are, uh, you know, from that punk rock world, um, you know, do recognize the evolution of music and rock and roll comes from uh, that place and time. Well, those field recordings, the sound and spirit of those field recordings... I mean, in a contemporary context, or I mean, going back at least 20, 30 years, that's the most punk rock sound. Yeah. That's the thing that people have been striving for, really. That's that kind of powerful, scrappy thing at the same time. You know, this impactful thing that's recorded kind of shitty, maybe, 
um, and is just full of but the the emotion and the power and the proficiency comes through. And 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 when Nevermind the Bollocks came out, take that record and play it on some radio stations or some places you'd offend a lot of people. But not as many people as you would offend if you played some of that music from the nineteen thirties. Yeah. And some of those music halls. It it would it's even more punk rock than what punk rock yeah. became. So you were you are a pretty uh active punk rock listening kind of guy like you're a I fan. sure am yeah, yeah I thought that was the true of you as well yeah you are doing an exhibition in my hometown of Cambridge Ontario what now you have you have exhibited you have had gallery exhibitions in pretty much every major arts metropolis in the world really haven't you except for Paris except for Paris <laughs> is that in the is that in the works I hope so <laughs> I'd love to you've been to Rome and New York and Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what is LA this? and London? Yeah. <laughs> LA and London. Yeah. You've done that stuff. What yeah. is the significance for you of going? What is the significance for you of regional uh, representation? Basically, like you're going to a small town. Cambridge is like a hundred or 200,000 people. Maybe it's, it's, it is West of Toronto. It's, it's a suburb of, well, everything's a suburb of Toronto really at this point. Um, what is the significance for you to go into a relatively small town with your work? It's in Ontario and it's home and it's being recognized from my home country uh, in a nice way because it's the very first uh, municipal gallery retrospective exhibition that I've ever done. What? Yeah. What is going on? So Why? it's fantastic. It's a, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's culturally significant that it is in Ontario. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's like the nicest um, invitation to to be welcomed from my home province. Well, you 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 must have some perspective on this. Why does Canada not seem to recognize the greatness of our own artists before the rest of the world does? I mentioned that you have exhibited everywhere except Paris, France, not yeah. Paris, Ontario. And yet, for some reason, I don't think people here in Canada necessarily know who you are. Is that? Do you feel that? Some do, some don't. I think they do now. Uh, for many years, they thought I was an American. Um, oh, well, you lived in New York for a while, maybe? Is that uh, well, not only that, it's, um, they thought I was from California because I was showing in galleries in L.A. Oh. And so they thought I was a West Coast artist. And I sometimes still meet people up here. Who are shocked? Who are shocked that I'm from here? Um, but going back to what you said, you know, uh, I know it's it's been a constant frustration. Um, I would worry about it more if I didn't have a career outside this country. <laughs> then it would be kind of scary. But you know, it, it's complex. It's it's annoying uh, because a lot of other countries aren't like that, yeah. and they support their own. Yeah, and. And that just makes me think that, you know, Canada is kind of behind the times. It needs to catch up. But at the same time, what's happening is is in that growth period, people who are aware of that need are taking chances and doing really cool things. So I see stuff happening and I've experienced stuff happening and I've been invited to do projects like Coins for the Royal Canadian Mint where things are happening, where they're more progressive than they would be in other countries of the world, and they're letting artists like me get away with stuff. But but that's still the end. Res- that's a cumulative effect of you being recognized. I think outside of here, exactly. It's not like they're saying, "Oh, you know, you let's 
support you because we we never heard of you and you're one of us. It is really like getting validation from somebody else and saying, oh, okay, so now you must matter. <laughs> Why are we so risk averse? Why are we so insecure to get behind our own right away? I don't understand this about our, and I say that, you know, you and I are, well, I'm first generation Canadian from, from an immigrant family and, and you know, you, you're not, you're not born here. You, you, you're an immigrant as well. I mean, I, I don't know what it is about our consciousness, about our collective. This is not, you are not an anomaly in this regard. Everyone who does well in Canada has to do well in the States exactly. or the world. Not yeah. even, it's not even, uh, it's not even England. Like, you know, you could be huge in England. It still wouldn't matter to us, to most people here. You have to be big in the States. Maybe it's just an American thing. Maybe people, we need American <laughs> approval uh, before we will accept our hmm. own. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't. I don't feel like I've ever needed American approval. Uh, Italian. I don't mean you as an artist, right? I mean for other Cult- people. Yeah, like other people, like curat- curators right. here, and yeah, yeah. and people that can could if they had the the vision, see your first work, young Gary Texali, and be like, I gotta get behind this guy. He's gonna be a star. But maybe maybe it's better. Maybe it's actually better for a Canadian artist to thrive outside of here and then come back and conquer like a conquerer i don't know it is but but you are absolutely right though i mean you know as you're talking i'm thinking about some things like yeah with art and music where i just shake my head and think you know are you kidding like they're like like, there's so many cool things happening here why don't you like get on it and then at the same time there there are other people who have the extreme view and they say oh no no we should only encourage and do things uh, from artists and designers and musicians and so forth in Canada, like the Pan Am Games Kanye West thing. Yeah. Like, wait a sec. On that level, are you kidding? No, no, no. He should, he's the guy that should have done that. And I'm glad he did. Yeah. And I'm and and I thought the, the petition was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, uh, people in England and Canada like making position, uh, petitions about Kanye West, not, being allowed to play yeah i don't know what the hell that was about i went and i liked it you went to the show i went to the, yeah i was invited by ryerson oh. um to uh hang out in their uh box and, and watch the uh the performance i i don't even how long was the performance wasn't it really short uh well the whole thing was a few hours oh and, but what, um, kanye's performance kanye's was i think like yeah like 15 minutes that's or it right totally yeah. like the thing they showed on tv was the whole thing yeah oh that's weird yeah I, uh, I've seen Kanye West five, six, seven times, yeah. and uh, it's phenomenal. I think uh-huh. he is a, I don't know, do you have a, do you, what do you make of him as an artistic force? Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about the guy, <laughs> or, or, or songs, or, or, or nothing. Um, I liked it. I thought it was fun. I, I remember there was a couple of cool sounding things. I remember thinking later, I got to like explore this. Yeah, man. Some of the stuff. He's but, like, I mean, from a, from a punk rock perspective or wherever you're coming from that guy i mean he is he is a rebel <laughs> he is he yeah. is, and he is in deep pain uh and and it all comes through like he is he is a, a raw nerve and people uh ascribe ego to it but he you know his mother passed away and he hasn't been the same uh, oh, yeah. he had his heart broken by that and he's always been kind of cocky and he's always been witty and funny and and has an ear for amazing sounds but i think he is he is angry and upset with the culture and uh the way black people are portrayed and treated and 
and his heart is broken and he is frustrated by the art around him and wants to make it all better. And it's a lot of a burden. Like I can see yeah. it on his shoulders Like he wants everything to be better. Yeah. And it comes out in this very confusing spray. You're making me like this guy even more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think he's a genius and, and people are signing petitions to keep him out of our country <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense. You've got this, uh, uh, exhibition in Cambridge. It's a, so it's a retrospective of what exactly your entire career or how does it work? Well, that would be impossible. Yes. <laughs> uh, ju- just what I could, uh, uh, get from uh, some of the galleries I work with and some collectors and some of my own things. But in the exhibition are our originals um, and some limited edition prints and books and vinyl figures and um, cufflinks and pocket squares and projects I've worked on. It's got a lot of stuff in that show. And where is it? Is it at the Cambridge Public Library Gallery or is it somewhere else? So it's a place called... Um, Designed by Riverside. Yeah. The gallery's called Idea Exchange. Yeah, I saw that, Idea yeah. Exchange. Oh, is it in Preston? No. I think I know where this is. It's I... it's attached to the um, University of Waterloo. Oh, okay. So it's right on the river, Designed okay. by River. It's a beautiful building. Nice. And uh, it's wonderfully curated, and it's on until uh, the third week of September. Okay. So it's up for a little while. But uh, that that is a... It's exciting to see, and I've been getting a lot of uh, nice feedback and, and press from it uh, on a weekly basis, really. I imagine it must be heartening for you to know that, you know, as objective as you can be about your own work, it must be heartening to know that your work might be inspiring and influencing kids from a reg- like a smaller region than a bigger city where they're overwhelmed by that kind of stuff. It's a nice feeling. It's ex- the exact same thing happened to me growing up, mm-hmm. and... It's the reason why I do what I do, and it's a responsibility. It's the passing of a baton. You know, I uh, I see it as a as a very um, you know you know important honor to like make something that can you know maybe change somebody's mind about what they want to do in the future and hopefully do it. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I treasure that. Good for you. No, that's amazing. Do you? Mm. What's next for you? What are you working on right now? Do you have uh, exhibitions that you're preparing for or more work? Bigger yeah, projects? So this entire year, uh, this entire year and some of last year, I've been working um, towards my solo exhibition in New York in November. It's at a gallery called the Jonathan Levine Gallery, yeah, which yeah. is my um, HQ. And my solo exhibition is called Hotel There. Hotel There. 30 brand new pieces. <laughs> and how many have you made? Uh, the lion's share of the, of the exhibition is done. Okay. It, um, and now it's at the stage of just uh, fixing up some of the works, varnishing it, and getting it prepared to get archived. And then it's going to be uh, going to New York soon. Is there uh, any kind of... You know, you put on a gallery showing... This happens all the time on this show. I talk to lots of musicians. They put out a record, and there might be a conceptual framework to the record. There might not be. It might just be a collection of songs. Uh, you, as a, as a, when you put together a gallery exhibition, you give it this title, Hotel There. What does that convey about the works? Anything in particular, or is it also sort of random? It, 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 there is something particular. The, the titles usually come from uh, the the vibe, the energy, and the mood of the entire exhibition. And so in this exhibition, um, I mean, I just start, I just start making the work and the things just kind of fall into place. In this exhibition, there was a lot of like, um, uh, 
exploration of um, uh, travel in airports and staying in hotels and a lot of those themes. Yeah, yeah. I have a piece called Bellhop. Uh, I've, I drew and painted about maybe like at least four or five airplanes oh. in this exhibition. So the idea of going from this place to the next place uh, really fascinated me. And so I like the idea of uh, having it sort of culminate to a title where it felt like um, the next destination is a, is a place that's also temporary. Right. Thus hotel there. Right. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. And so when it's at, it's at this gallery and when is the exhibition supposed to be on for? So it opens on November 21st and it's up for about a month until um, the third week of December. Then what happens? What happens to all that work? Well, <laughs> what happens to all that work? I mean, it hopefully mostly gets sold. Right. If not all of it, which would be the ideal. And um, yeah, people buy it and uh, I mostly just never see it again. Isn't that weird? No. Do you do prints like I when you of any of that stuff? Will you do like a print of it? Um, not really. No, it just goes. It just goes. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I have archives of it, high res archives and photographs of the works, but I'm used to it. It's my livelihood. I'm not attached to my work or anything I've ever made. Huh. Uh, it's. I've never been attached to my work. I'm attached to the process of making it, but. My job is to draw and paint, and you know, I I survive from selling it. So, yeah, no, I don't yeah. expect you to hoard it all. I just wondered <laughs> what happens if you don't, and if you don't sell it, it comes back to you. You put it somewhere. Well, usually, what happens is, I mean, the gallery keeps it for a while, then it, <laughs> you know, sometimes goes to art fairs, and then other collectors pick it up. But yeah, you know, here and there, or go, or go to another gallery. But I mean, you know, it's not like after a certain amount of time, like. A crate shows up like, here's your stuff back. Nobody wants it. <laughs> okay, it's it's once you've made it and you put it in a gallery, it's it's gone. You're not seeing that stuff again. Yeah, for it'll, the most part, yeah. It'll end up somewhere. You might get a check someday for some of it or whatever. Do you get told like... I got a check. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, they're, they're very professional. Are you? No, no, I didn't mean... <laughs> do you ever... Are you ever told like, uh, hey, you know who bought... You know Jeff Bridges bought your painting? Do you ever get told like... Oh, some, yeah. Does that happen? Yeah. Is there like somebody that you're like, oh, my God... You know, they have my work. Can you, yeah, I mean, I, I you also... You probably don't want to talk about it. You're not allowed to say Sometimes it. a little bit, but it, I mean, there is also a bit of like um, a a confidentiality sure. in terms of like when a collector is buying something, uh, just because they happen to be a known celebrity doesn't mean they want everyone knowing what you know yeah. their personal connection to art is. Um, but, you know, that said, you know... I, there are people <laughs> who, who have bought my work. Like a funny story happened once. Like I know... Um, at the gallery, Morgan Spurlock has, has purchased my work. Uh-huh. So uh, uh, last year I was in an uh, airport in Newark, and, and I saw him, and I went up to him to say hello. And uh, it was one of these things where he was just like, um, he looked kind of, it was, he was at a gate, and he had his bags, and he looked kind of frustrated, like the rest of us do, right? You know, it was a, it was a busy yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's no place to sit, and, you know, everybody's checking their watches and the flight stuff, and... And I went up to him and said, hey, hey, are you Morgan Spurlock? And without looking at me, he, he just sighed and said, yep. And and again, there's a lot of people yeah, around, sure. right? Just blankly staring at this. And I said, well, you know, I just wanted to say hello. Because, um, you know, I know you by my work. My name is Gary Texali. And and he looks at me and he's holding a cell phone. He said, dude, I'm just about to mail you, email you. Here, look. 
and he shows me his what? phone. Yeah, he shows me his phone, and the subject is you are awesome. He goes, look, I'm hitting send. I hit send right now. Check your, you have this email. I'm like, you're kidding. He goes, no, no, man. He goes, I, I want to talk to you about the show I'm curating. What the hell? What are the odds of that? That's what really are the weird. odds of that? It was like the craziest thing. Wow. And the show was fantastic. It was, um, uh, he was working with a, a gallery in Culver City called, um, I believe it was called, um, Think Space. Yeah. And the show was called New Blood. So the idea was that he asked, I think about maybe like eight or 10 artists whose work he really liked to pick somebody that nobody's ever heard of. And then, so the exhibition would be me and this new blood artist. Oh, and then the next artist and their new blood artists, the idea to give, um, everybody equal footing a chance to like, you know, to, to bring up these, uh, emerging artists. I thought it was a brilliant idea. Yeah, That is amazing. It's amazing, right? Wow. It's and nice. What a weird, we, that's a weird interaction. Yeah. That's a strange one. All right. That's a good celebrity art story. And I have another one where <laughs> I don't know if he bur- purchased my work, but at my last exhibition at Jonathan Levine, um, I saw Mike Myers at the opening. Oh. And so, uh, I mean, you know, I, if I saw Mike Myers on the street or at opening, I would never say hello to him because I wouldn't want to bother somebody. Sure, sure. But he's at my opening. It's my house in a way. Right? Yeah, sure, sure. So I went up to him. And I said, hey, another Toronto boy. And he rolled his eyes. Oh. Um, you know, he was like, oh, God, here, you know, another yeah. one, right? Which I kind of get. And so it was a little bit like, oh, okay. And I said, well, I just wanted to say hello. I'm the artist. And then his face perked up. And he was really <laughs> nice. I love your work. And then he was friendly. I don't know if he bought anything, but. Um, he has a reputation for being a little prickly, I think. And uh, whereas growing up, he seemed like the nicest guy ever. But there are these stories now that yeah. he was kind of difficult to work with. But I wonder a, if I would be prickly, though, if I was like that famous. Or... No, no, not with fans. I think with actually his colleagues. That's oh, the reputation. I see, I like see. he's actually difficult to work with. Right. Um, and he's been trying mm. to get out from under that cloud of, of, making, yeah. of being friendlier. So it's interesting that you approached him and he was like, Ugh. and then once he realized you were a somebody, he yeah. was nice. But no, that's that's cool. I think you I mean, I'm. As I, I, I don't know if you know this, but you and I connected, uh, I think, over Facebook. I probably just added you as a friend when I saw you were on there. And yeah. I, I messaged you to say, hey, I'm a huge fan of your work. And you wrote back a thing where you were rolling your eyes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what? That <laughs> no, sounds like my humor. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I said, uh, my wife and I have a print of yours. Yeah. Of oh no, it's, it's, I think it's a real. It's a famous. Is that a famous print? You made little dolls out of them. You made yeah. little toys, right? So it's a. It's a. Is, is it a signature piece? Would you say? Or one it's of a them? signature piece. It was commissioned uh, by the Whitney Museum. Yeah. So they they wanted uh, me to do um, a piece of art, a limited edition screen print they could give to their uh, donors, right? Along with a vinyl figure. Um, so they commissioned me to do this stuff, and um, in the piece. Uh, I don't know if I told you this, but in the piece of underneath, oh no, there's a little crown. That's right. Yeah. And that little crown is a nod to Jean-Michel Basquiat. Oh. Because he would do that uh, symbol a lot in oh, his work. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. I'll have to, I stare at, oh no, this print, because my wife and I got it at a, a Guelph Jazz Festival art auction, silent art auction, many years ago. Maybe a decade. When, how old is that thing? Ooh. Uh, 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. So we yeah. probably got it. 10 years yeah. ago to be honest no it's no you know what yeah is oh yeah it's 2015 is it older than that 
20, no, it's it's I, about ten years. Ten years, yeah. So we've had it since whenever. We've had it a long time. Okay, it's come to our different houses, and and currently it's in the it was in the bathroom, which I always felt bad about, and <laughs> but now it's in the living room, and I stare at it all the time. So it's uh, you know, I'm a fan of yours, and I as I mentioned, hopefully not too gushingly, I'm always excited when I open up a magazine and see your work in it. Thank you. I'm a big fan, and uh, you know, I think I hope more people particularly in this country, figure out who you are and seek out your work. And, and they can learn about it at GaryTaxali.com. That's right. GaryTaxali.com or Taxali.com. Okay. Both websites. But yeah, um, and I'm also on, on Facebook and Instagram. And, and Twitter. And Twitter. Yeah. Uh, Twitter is not as uh, fun for me because uh, because it's not a, a visual medium like Instagram is. Sure. But that's more... Uh, I'm going to follow you on... I don't think I follow you on Instagram. I'm going to follow you on Instagram. Yeah, follow That'll me be on Instagram. Fun. <laughs> Gary, this was, uh, I hope you had fun. I did. Thank you this so was much a, for having kind me. kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's nice. But I hope you enjoyed it, and I wish you, you know, the best luck, and I hope we, we speak again soon. Thank you, Vish. That was really kind of you to invite me. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.